Uh, let's talk to Howell George this evening. Howell George is the Director of Investments at the Old Mutual Investment Group. And Howell George has been very active, of course, in uh, recent weeks, talking all about uh, the world of investing and investments and the year that has been. And I think it's been a, a really productive year, Howell, for particularly investors in U.S. markets. But around the world, I think people have become come to terms with the fact that possibly the worst is over is that your view and the view of the old mutual investment group that we've you know we've the storm is dissipating and we're leaving it in our wake well evening bruce evening everyone um well markets are certainly saying that yes the worst is over i'm not sure if this is a little bit of a honeymoon period before bikes certainly we'd be a little bit more on the cautious side um, I mean, markets have a lot latched on to the Federal Reserve in the U.S. saying that, that rates are going to be coming down next year, despite the fact that the economy is actually a little bit too strong for that. So if we don't see rate cuts next year and we see, in fact, inflation picking up, we may see a slightly more difficult time because markets are at all-time highs. And sometimes you get this period where rates have gone up, the economy looks fine, but it takes a while for rates to hit. And therefore, that reality may be coming down the track for markets possibly into 2024. Now, that's always the cautious side, of course, of somebody who's a professional in investments, because uh, we're talking about a world engineering a soft landing. And there's a big debate about whether the U.S. finally will achieve that. They've been talking about it for quite some time. At the beginning of this year, the world was predicting not only a U.S. recession, but a global recession. It hasn't happened. And I I wonder um, if it is worthwhile trying to predict the future when it comes to the world of investing. It seems to be a bit of a mugs game. Well, it's, it's always a difficult one, Bruce, that is certainly true. Um, and what's, what, what, what you can say in terms of the facts of the case right now, to look back in history might be helpful, because if you take the word count of, of corporate earnings calls currently, you, you've got a spike in the words soft landing. So everyone's now expecting a soft landing. And you always get, it turns out, through history, a spike in the words soft landing just before a recession hits. <laughs> Because you are in this strange air pocket where rates rates have gone up and the economy seems fine. So so people seem to believe the best at this precise point in the cycle when it may be that the worst is yet to come. I'm sorry to say. Okay, and and how does that worst potentially play out? I mean, I see lots of chatter um, all about the U.S. going into recession, which seems unlikely. But as you say, the you know all is quiet. All is quiet before the storm, I suppose. It does take a little while, and it's taken a little longer this time, because it has been a little bit of a conundrum for economists, I think, as is often the case, um, because interest rates have gone up in the States, yes, but give or take 85 or 90% of U.S. mortgages, where that should bite, are on long-term fixed rates, 30-year rates. So rates go up at the short end, and your mortgage holder kind of doesn't care, because you're still paying 3% or 8%. So it's going to take a little while for that to, um, for that to, um, to hit, um, mortgage holders, and that's probably going to come through in 2024. So if you look at something like credit cards, where it does hit quicker, I mean, credit card, credit card delinquencies, i.e. credit cards in trouble, are at all-time peaks right now, which tends to happen just before a recession. And is that happening worldwide? I mean, I, we haven't had any reports from the South African banking sector in terms of there's been gradual credit deterioration, but no big fear and worry about the way in which South African credit has been managed, not to the same extent as we had before 2008 and then in the bank's crisis of 2003 and thereabouts where credit extension went mad. People have become a lot more better at issuing credit in South Africa. But I think it's a global a global phenomenon where the cost of living crisis has pushed people to living on credit credit and have been living more on credit perhaps than at any other time in recent memory. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it, that's true. And, and if I could characterize it as being a Western phenomenon as opposed to a global South phenomenon, and particularly in the States, because, you know, the cost of, of building, quote unquote, the U.S. empire over the last 40 years has been an enormous accumulation of debt, both on personal and corporate and now government balance sheets. And so, you know, the impact of these high rates when it really does strike actually is probably going to come to the States in a more severe fashion than it is the rest of the world. So places like South Africa are, are, are much less levered than the U.S. would be. Um, and certainly, you know, large parts of the global south are less levered. So this time around, it could be the U.S. which has a tougher time than, than actually most people.
And so how does that then play out in markets? Because we've seen this astonishing recovery in stock markets, particularly in the S&P 500, which is up about 25% this year. And this is the, the, the classic moment where all of us get FOMO when we say, well, the JSE is down 5% this year in dollar terms. Look at the S&P 500. Inflation is coming to an end. Interest rates are going to be cut in the new year. So let's there go, you know, uh, put both feet into the U.S. market and let's take the Warren Buffett's approach that, you know, never bet against America, because clearly this recovery, certainly from a market's perspective, is very much on track. Well, I guess I could use another Warren Buffett quote, which would be to be fearful when others are greedy <laughs> and greedy when others are fearful. So, you know, there's a lot of kind of greed and FOMO in the market now. People want to chase it. People are happy. You know, the tech stocks are flying. And we've seen this before. And back in 1999, you were a complete fool not to be in the market towards the end of 1999. Uh, I remember it very well. And then everyone kind of piled in at the top and come 2000, everyone was very, very sad that they did. So just mind your eye at the moment. Things are a little too bullish, a little too positive for my liking. Okay. Um, and and uh, again, that is uh, somebody who's carrying the scars of many years of investment experience um, uh, on, on, your, on, your, on your body, I suppose. You guys at Old Mutual are often criticized, uh, certainly on social media platforms, for the, the generally positive view that you take on South African markets. And this year, as I mentioned earlier, JC down 5 6% in dollar terms relative to that 25% gain on the S&P 500. And I suppose it's indicative of... Even when investment cases look compelling and when multiples are low, there are always going to be factors that can prevent that from materializing. And certainly that's been the case in the South African stock market for the last decade. I think this, the JSE has been sort of trading in a band between seventy and 80,000 for much of that time. Yes. And, you know, South Africa is, has certainly had its issues. That is certainly true to say. And uh, I think if you're going to be positive on South Africa relative to the rest of the world for the next year, which I think on balance we kind of are, you're kind of making a, a, taking a position that South Africa as an economy will be slightly less bad than people think. And I think you can take that if you, if you believe that low shedding will be slightly less bad than people think, which I think is probably true, and that we can get through you know, the election, um, May 22nd, I'm told, uh, unscathed or oh. relatively unscathed, and um, can uh, come out the other side, you know, slightly better than people thought. May 22nd, where's that little nugget come from? I couldn't possibly share my sources, Bruce, I'm afraid, but, you know, that, that may be a scoop here, I'm not sure. Or it may be completely wrong. No, no, of course. But, I mean, it's, it's there or thereabouts. We're headed for an April or a May election, and it's going to depend on Easter, and it's going to depend on the emotion of the 27th of April, which this year, which next year is on a Saturday, so it's not going to happen on that weekend. So it's there or thereabouts is likely to be a general election in South Africa. And, again, half the world, you know, is, is going to elections next year, and half the world believes that it's going to be a, a, a very negative and very hard-fought election in many parts of the world. Um, the United Kingdom is like to see a change of government. The United States is on tenterhooks as to who the candidates will be. And of course, in South Africa, we're just petrified of a mess of coalitions coming through. Yes, and, and I think probably just briefly on those, South Africa, we think will get a slightly organized coalition with the ANC polling in the high 40s and, and teaming up with some of the smaller parties. Um, in the States, I think we are going to get a President Trump 2.0 um, come November time. I think all the momentum is actually in his favor right now. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. The Taiwanese election, is that probably the most interesting one, on the 13th of January, uh, where the opposition parties are champing at the bit of the incumbents. Um, and they are much more pro-neutral China. So you could see kind of a Chinese stealth takeover of Taiwan without a shot being fired. And that would mean that China would control two-thirds of semiconductor production globally, which again gives yeah. them a, an interesting card in, oh. in the new digital age. So, I mean, are you telling me, how that I need to go and get a couch and any money that I've got, <laughs> I need to store it in the, in the arms or maybe in the cushions of my couch? I mean, that's a national pastime. Certainly, it's, you know, it's been done in South Africa before. If you're wary about, about the world of investing, you seem to be putting a lot of words of caution into the mix next year, which, which frightens me a bit. I was feeling a bit more optimistic than that. <laughs> I think some relative caution, I think, is warranted when, when things feel as bubbly as they are now. I think the longer term framework is actually very positive. You know, we're in a, in a decade where technological progress, 
is exponential and is and these technology trends are converging together, startling growth in all kinds of technologies, and that that should be a very positive theme for for productivity and dare I say it for humanity. I hope for the next decade. So we've just got to get through some near term turbulence, is my view, and in the long term for all clients, the only free lunch and investing, as I'm sure you know, is diversification and a balanced portfolio of equities, bonds, and cash will always see you right in the longer term view. And the, the the one fundamental rule that comes to play time and time again, and we always reminded it uh, of it when Charlie Munger died, and I forget the exact quote, but it says, it's better to buy a great company at a fair price than a fair company at a great price. Uh, you don't want to buy rubbish when it's cheap. You don't want to buy great things when they're too expensive. You want to buy great companies when the pricing is fair. And I think when we look at certainly U.S. markets, which have had this huge rally this year, the pricing possibly isn't fair in in our favor anyway. Yes, and, and certainly in the technology sector, dare I say, it's, you know, the mag- magnificent seven of Alphabet et al. and Tesla uh, and NVIDIA, um, those are very, very expensive shares right now. And they are the flavor of the month uh, and therefore a little bit you know dangerous in that sense. So look at other sectors of the market. Look at the, look at other areas of the world economy. So, you know, the, the global south, if I can term it that, will probably do better I suspect, on the U.S., and that's a brave thing to say, I know, given Warren Buffett's view, and I, I would empathize with that view, but there, there are probably better um, uh, valuations to be had, certainly, outside of the states and outside of technology, where, where people aren't really looking right now. That's the interesting part of the market for me. Is South Africa one of those parts, or are you talking more about the Indias of the world, the Australias of the world, the Philippines of the world, even Brazil? I think Southeast Asia, yes. India is actually very expensive, although it's probably going to do quite okay. well as an economy. South Africa is very cheap, um, and so it could do relatively well, I suspect. Um, but Southeast Asia, particularly if the, you know, the Chinese juggernaut continues, I think will continue to do well. You may see good returns out of Latin America for a little while. Um, and so you know, those kind of less explored areas uh, and commodities, I suspect, once we're through kind of a recession, commodities could do reasonably well. If I'm right that inflation becomes more entrenched in the longer term, that's an, that's an environment where commodities, and particularly gold, um, does they do very well, and gold in particular. Howell, well, thank you. Um, I, it's, uh, I think, confused me more <laughs> than uh, I was before, but I suppose that's the nature of investing and the nature of markets is you have to be able to surf the waves as they come. And at the moment, um, the waves are looking good. They're looking perfectly formed, and it looks like you can easily catch one in a surfing analogy. Uh, but at the same time, well, one of those waves could end up being one of those horrible big dumpy ones that could... Yeah. Wayne McCurry is with Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. I've got a quiz question for you, Wayne. And if you get this right, I will be terribly impressed, but not particularly shocked if you get it wrong. Which is the world's best performing share of 2023? Oh, Bruce, I wouldn't. No. Oh, that's okay. I wouldn't even hesitate. It's a South Korean company I've never heard of. And I wonder if you've ever heard of it. Um, It is a company called EcoPro Co. (laughs) That's what it's called. EcoPro Company. It, um, the, I was looking at Bloomberg earlier today. The Bloomberg World Index has got 2,647 members on it. And EcoProco has gained 571% this year. And it's yeah. more than 200% more than the runner-up. Also part of the uh, electric sort of vehicle craze. And it's the big trend, I suppose, of 2023 that companies like EcoPro and Kumyango, um, the South Korean companies, have been able to flourish way off the radar. Bruce, yes. I mean, obviously, you know, the whole lithium electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, these are the, 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 the go-go shares at the moment. But, you know, there's one thing I've learned about go-go shares eventually every company has got to show a profit. You know, otherwise the shares don't stay at these elevated levels. You know, they can last at high levels for years and years and years, but ultimately every company's got to show a profit. No, absolutely. Uh, but, and uh, I suppose the big lesson when it comes to investing is you can't predict 
the trend. You can't predict what's going to happen in any part of the world. You can't predict what's going to happen in any company in any big trend because you'll have some winners and some losers in every big trend. How do we position mm-hmm. ourselves? How will George just put the fear of markets into us? Saying, look, there's a lot that can still go wrong in 2024. Don't assume yeah. that just because inflation is coming down and interest rates are likely to reduce that the world is going to have an easy ride next year. And I think it's a, an important lesson. So how do we position ourselves in your view, Wayne, somebody who's been in markets for a while now, uh, as to how to do this best? There's only one free lunch. Only one thing is given to you for free in investments, and that is diversification. If you run a well-diversified portfolio, you have some winners, hopefully, in your portfolio, but no one thing that goes wrong can kill you. You know, it's, it's wonderful going into the go-go shares. But, you know, go-go shares come to an end at some stage. They always do. You know, the big growth shares of 20 years ago, you know, aren't even around anymore. You know, the platinum shares from 2004 through to 2008, they were the go-go shares. Uh, you know, so you've got to run a diversified portfolio. It's not sexy. It's not, you know, you can't brag about a diversified portfolio. But it ultimately does. It's the only thing that protects you from huge market variations. I mean, you can you can look. I know Bitcoin has recovered quite significantly now, but everyone wanted to buy it at sixty five thousand. And what was the next stock was seventeen thousand. Now, if you've got two or three percent of your portfolio in there, you don't like it, but it doesn't kill you. But if you've got sixty percent of your portfolio in something like that, and it goes wrong. It absolutely destroys you. So that is the only way you can actually protect yourself from the future, because nobody knows the future. You know, it's it is it is an unknown. And whenever people like myself or any of your guests talk about the future, we essentially are all guessing. Some are better at guessing than others. What's your yes. best guess then, Wayne? <laughs> because you know I'm going there. What's your best guess for yeah. South Africa and its markets in 2024? I'm very positive on a two to three year view. And I have been for a long time because I think the cycle is turning. We'll go to a commodity up cycle over the next two to three years. And that in lower interest rates, much stronger rand, and a good share market probably led by the commodity shares. But there's lots of cheap South African shares as well. I mean, our banks are cheap, our retailers are cheap. And our economy is driven by the commodity cycle. It always has been. And it will probably will be for the foreseeable future as well. So when the commodity cycle turns down, we have a torrid time. Everything else almost, you know, goes to the sideline. And when the commodity cycle turns up, we have a great time. All the other problems also go to this, go to the sideline, surprisingly enough. And hopefully we get some uh, structural changes or a continuation of structural changes in South Africa and the private sector sorts out our electricity supply and the private sector sorts out our transnet and our logistic issues. And, you know, we look forward to a much better uh, medium-term outlook than what we've had over the last year or two. Wayne McCurry, thank you for your countless contributions on The Money Show this year from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. Wayne. Bruce is on The Money Show. I see we're joined by Dave Watts. Dave is a maritime consultant at uh, uh, to the South African Association of Freight Forwarders. And I've been talking a lot this week about the disruption to Red Sea shipping as a result of attacks on ships in a very narrow strait, about 20 kilometers wide, which connects it to the Indian Ocean between Djibouti and Yemen. It's one of the reasons oil prices have gone from about 70 to $80 a barrel in the last 10 days or so, because we're seeing increasing numbers of ships being directed around the Southern Cape to avoid attacks. Even the Swedish furniture giant IKEA has said today that supplies for its products are being delayed by the constant worry of attacks on shipping in that part of the world. Dave Watts with us this evening, the maritime consultant to the South African Association of Freight Forwarders. And it's astonishing to see just how many companies are having to issue statements around this, Dave. And it does give us a sense as to just how important the Red Sea is from a global trade perspective. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Bruce. Of course, it's the Suez Canal that's the real issue there because that's the only way through, well, other than coming around the Cape Coast, it's the only way through to get from the Far East into Europe and European markets. And and then, well, we know that problems the Suez can give us just a year or two ago when that big evergreen ship got stuck there for a week. 
cause a bit of mayhem, but short-term mayhem. Uh, this this could, of course, it depends on on a whole load of political and I think perhaps even military issues as to how this la- this will last. Uh, but certainly, yeah, it's it's a big issue. Uh, is it going to impact on South Africa? I guess that's what your listeners would probably want more to know about. Um, I guess the answer is yes, it will. Uh, already, uh, various shipping lines, in particular, all of whom are having to come this extra work, which I think is about an extra twelve thousand kilometres assuming, you know, they're coming from the Far East and traveling around our coast. Uh, so already one of the major shipping lines here has just announced a surcharge of $500 a, a container for consignments coming into South Africa. Now, it might be rather difficult to calculate why that's the case, and the logic seems a little bit difficult, and I must admit I think it is a bit difficult, but the fact of the matter is this line is saying we have substantial additional costs overall in our entire fleet for the simple reason that by taking an extra two to three weeks on every ship, our equipment is now restricted. Less ships, less equipment, less containers, so the price goes up. That's the only explanation I can give, and that's going to hurt us as imports into South Africa on this particular line. I'm not going to mention them. Uh, on top of already a 200 to a near case $210 surcharge because of congestion here on import boxes. So that's a big cost for us. One of the other lines, a uh, major line, not so much coming into here, but from the Red Sea are putting very substantial surcharges on uh, $1,575 per 20 foot container, the smaller container, 27 for the big 40 foot container for goods coming out of the Red Sea. Now, that's not a bit of an issue for us. Uh, we don't really buy much from the Red Sea, so I don't tell all, the, all those areas, Aden, Djibouti, Jeddah, and so forth. Um, but it doesn't, if we are, then we're going to be looking at a very substantial increase. That's really a lot of money. So for uh, South Africa's perspective, yes, there's going to be cost. That's just one line. Uh, I'm expecting other lines to introduce surcharges along those lines. Um, for the simple reason that if you recollect just post-COVID when half the world's fleet of container ships was stuck off the coast of America, off of Los Angeles, was a massive problem with equipment then because it was all stuck on ships and in in Los Angeles and Long Beach ports. And we had a tremendous problem getting containers and having to pay worldwide extra surcharge. So if this, this carries on here, one can visualize not quite to the same extent, but uh, some serious problems with additional costs. Just on it's the so question, frustrating because uh, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's stuff yeah. that we can't control, mm-hmm. Dave. And I mean, it's no, the, the evergreen getting stuck in the Suez Canal was an mm-hmm. engineering problem, and that yes. engineering problem was resolved with you know a, a digger and a bit of a reverse thrust, and then the ship was released and everything carried on as normal. The trouble with this yeah. particular yeah, disruption week, you know, is that uh, there's no end in sight. Yeah. No, absolutely right. I mean, this surcharge that's been announced here, I think it's effective the 1st of January. So that line is certainly assuming this isn't going to get cleared up quickly. Uh, I could, one can absolutely understand. They do not want to sh- send their ships into an environment where people are, are helicoptering in and holding up their crew and, and basically capturing the ship or firing missiles at it. Of course, they don't want to go there. But you're quite right. Frustrating for us because it's got absolutely nothing to do with us. On the other side, of course, now we've got a substantial number of additional ships coming around that coast. Uh, some big ones, too, some really big container ships. There'll be 15,000, 20,000 TEU ships, I would imagine, maybe about that size. So that's also a concern. We have spoken to the Port Authority here, just just asking them, are they, you know, obviously they're aware of it. And they have assured us that uh, just in the, we get lots of ships coming past that coast. It's probably good news that it's summer and not winter when our, our coastline gets pretty gnarly. Uh, so this is, in a sense, the positive side of it. The guys have told us they're on top of it, as it were. They've got the right equipment. Should there be anything necessary, most likely thing, hopefully nothing at all. Could be, you know, a, an injured or, or sick sailor has to be taken off a ship and brought to shore with one of the uh, port helicopters. Or if the ship's in difficulty, we do have the tugs. But look, we're doing that all the time. So we're here. We really know what goes on when ships pass us. So we're really happy with, or at least the Port Authority are. Hopefully everybody else is too. 
Um, thank you very much, Dave Watts, who's a maritime consultant at the South African Freight Forwarders Association, bringing us up to speed with the consequences of the story we've been talking about for the last week or so, and that is the huge disruption to Red Sea shipping traffic. The narrow inlet from the Indian Ocean into the Red Sea um, is at the southern end of this channel. The channel then culminates ultimately in a gap between the Middle East and, and Egypt, which is the Suez Canal. Suez Canal was blocked for a week. It caused havoc. Um, now, uh, shipping isn't being blocked in the Red Sea, but certainly it is being disrupted, and that is coming with huge additional costs. And those ships then are going to come around the Southern Cape. It's an extra 3,500 miles for the ships to, to travel, 10 more days to move cargo, which is why those surcharges that he was talking about, an extra $1,575 on a 20-foot container, 2700 on a 40-foot container, is significant, absolutely significant. If you're moving goods around the world, it has a huge cost impact on you, of course, and, of course, on uh, the products and the services that you deliver. So big problems coming through, of course, in terms of the additional cost. And it's going to be uh, take as long as it takes the international community to respond to the Houthi rebels who are sitting in Yemen. And uh, one looks at the sort of forces that are gathering to combat these disruptions, you wouldn't want to, as I think Peter Brook from the Old Mutual Investment Group said earlier this week, you wouldn't want to be a Houthi rebel at the moment because the world's attention is very firmly uh, being focused on the uh, on that region of the world and there will be a violent response to uh, violent attacks on civilian shipping. Uh, shipping analysts in Asia are saying that every journey between Asia and Northern Europe is going to cost an extra million dollars and so that's the estimate now in terms of the longer this goes on of course the deeper that problem becomes for anybody in welcome to the money show this evening let's have a look at i don't know i don't like talking politics at the best of times but unfortunately it's so integral to our shared future that we've got to get a better feel for the political landscape in which we live Peter Dutoy has got a very firm finger on that pulse. He is assistant editor at News 24. I want to talk a bit about Jacob Zuma and his attempt to make a comeback, which is part tragic, part comic and part terrifying, uh, Peter. But first, I suppose the, the biggest effect on everybody and everything this year has not only been 283 days of load shedding, but the very near total collapse of Transnet and hopefully its resurrection. Good evening, Bruce. Uh, and, I, and I share your 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 uh, your frustration with our politics yes i mean i think the poor governance is is now catching up to us and i think if i look back over the last year if we all look back over the last year it, it almost feels like um mismanagement in in all our almost all our soes certainly key soes like transit and and, and escom um this year everything almost came to a head it almost feels like everything started to collapse at the same time obviously it is and we all know uh, why it has happened? It's because of poor political choices, poor poor management, uh, uh, rampant dysfunction, corruption, uh, criminality in those SOEs. And if, if you look at what happened at, at Portnet over the last couple of months, uh, Transnet, you mentioned that our logistics uh, uh, network has almost completely collapsed, which 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 led to pri- the private sector um, starting to inter- intervene in the process with the presidency. Three work streams were established, so. So it was a year in which business started moving closer to the political class, uh, most importantly the presidency, to try and see if they can sort that out. But I think the, the collapse of Transnet, our logistics environment, Portnet and, uh, and ESCOM um, remains the biggest story of the year. And I wonder if the biggest story of the year in 2024 is likely to be the attempt by Parliament and the National Council of Provinces to push through a deeply flawed proposal on yes. NHI, currently sitting on the president's desk. The president who needs the private sector's collaboration and cooperation to keep him and his party in a job um, uh, is now looking down the barrel of a political gun over here to be you know, everyone saying to him, you know, get signing, dude. Uh, we want to get NHI in place. And he knows probably, I mean, I hope he knows that it's a terrible idea in its current form. And I wonder if he's going to have the political guts to stare down his colleagues in the party to say no. Well, Bruce, if, I think if, if, if history is anything to go by, we are moving towards an election back somewhere in May or June. We will see, in, you know, more and increasingly we'll see these types of populist um, moves by the governing party in Parliament, uh, by the national executive, by the president, supporting something like NHI. There's no way that he'll go 
uh, against NHI in public. Obviously, um, the way in which the ANC voted firstly in the National Assembly and then later on uh, in the National Council of Provinces to force through that piece of very much very flawed legislation, like you said. You know, uh, it's an election year. It's, we're six months out from the election. They're going to do stuff like this. My, my guess would be, um, as in 2019, if you cast your mind back, uh, when the big issue was, was expropriation uh, of land uh, without compensation, um, you know, when, when we're close to an election, we see this type of thing happening. It's obviously bad for the economy. It's, 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 it's bad for society. It's going to be bad for, for healthcare nationally. Um, but they need this to take it to the electorate, to tell the electorate, look, this is what we're doing. We're trying to get um, our voters our supporters, universal health care. Of course we agree. Everyone in their right mind agrees that, you know, the health care system needs to be more equitable. Um, it needs to be spread more just uh, uh, in, in, in a just manner so that everyone can have access to proper health care. But this is clearly not the way to do it. And, and government, like they haven't been able to do with Transnet or ESCOM or any other um, area of, of governance that you'd like to mention, have not yet gotten it right. Uh, exactly the same with healthcare and education for that matter. So expect more of this. In Gauteng, we've seen the Premier Panyaza Lesufi launch his own police force, Gauteng police force, you know, the Ama Panyaza, they call them. So, so it's, it's populist politics, Bruce. Uh, let's see where it ends up next year, but expect more of this type of thing. Yeah, more crazy. Uh, I fully anticipate it. Is there craziness in the idea that uh, co- opposition forces could coalesce uh, to truly uh, unseat the ANC and get to a point where they get enough support amongst themselves to form a government. I think that's highly unlikely. And I wonder whether or not anybody within that alliance truly believes it will survive the first hiccup of any sort of election victory that may come their way. Yeah, look, Bruce, I think, I think the, the multi-party um, uh, charter that was formed earlier this year after an idea that was born by born out well that was that was that was born and uh, in, in, uh, you know john steen has brought the idea forward it's it's the first big realignment of politics that we've seen in a good couple of years um so i think it's a it's a laudable and a valiant effort the fact of the matter though is that the numbers don't work out at the moment um to force the anc under 50 i think that that's a possibility the anc at the moment um they secured 57 percent at the ballot box in 2019 if you look at the, traje- the trajectory that they followed over the last uh, four or five elections, election cycles, it is most definitely downward. So it, 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 there's a more, better than even chance that they might end up on 50 plus one or 50 minus one. You know, that's still up in the air. The problem, though, is their natural coalition partner for the ANC is the EFF. Um, the EFF ended up at 10% last time around. There's a good chance that they might increase their support. I don't think they're a 15 to 20% party, but, but they might be a 12, 13, 14% party. And they'll be the natural partner for the ANC if they go and meet 49. That means uh, an ANC-EFF coalition immediately um, pushes, pushes their number uh, to, 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 to north of 60%, which tells us that politics over the last 50 years, which is quite a depressing thought, hasn't really changed that much. So parts of <laughs> parties outside of ANC-EFF you know, still only score around 34 35%. Um, which is quite a depressing thought, but at least we're starting to see the first sign of, of a form of a coalition. Absolutely. Now, as we look at Jacob Zuma, as he keeps sort of trying to remain relevant, does he go into 2024 as a political force or as a political farce? What's your take on it? A, a, a political farce, I think, I think, Bruce. Look, he's still going to be a factor in Zulu Natal. Um, the, the ANC in, in KZN have distanced themselves from Jacob Zuma in, in, in the last couple of days. Um, after they wanted him to spearhead the party's election campaign in the province. So, so if you look at KZN, it's a, it's a, it's a strong tribalistic province. You know, it's a, it's the, 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 the ethnic, uh, vote remains very strong there. But Jacob Zuma has, I think, um, over the last year or so, um, has not endeared him to the party. And the fact that the ANC and KZN have now distanced themselves from him, um, means that he's probably dead in the water. But it does muddy the waters for the ANC. It does lead to internal contestation and internal uh, conflict, which, which the party has been driven by over the last five to ten years. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be that, that much of a factor next year.
Does it play to opposition parties' advantage, or are they just so incapable of taking advantage of every time the ANC shoots itself in the foot or a member of the ANC um, takes both barrels to both feet um, that they're not going to be able to capitalise on this very clear dislocation within what used to be the most powerful single political force in the country? I think, I think you know, what, what the opposition, the, the, the ANC, um, they're on an inexorable path um, to, to their end. I mean, that's the, it's, it's a question of when. The trajectory in every single election, municipal, national, over the last couple of election cycles, have shown that the ANC is a party in steep and significant decline. Um, they, they, you know, we've spoken about Transnet, uh, ESCOM, uh, so many other issues we can talk about where, which, which, which bears out the fact that they, they are dysfunctional in, 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 in government and, and I think they, they, they've lost the, the authority to govern and I think change is absolutely necessary next year. If the opposition can, can take a coherent message to the elected to tell them this is how we're going to get you out of this mess, you know, then they've got a good chance. Um, the ANC will always be racked by divisions and internal conflicts and factions and people wanting to knife on a pause or wanting to push Masha Pile forward or wanting to push that faction forward. That's a given, as is ANC uh, misrule at the moment. Um, it's about the message that the opposition should and can take to, to the electors, and that should be a message of this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to make your life better. Um, vote for us rather than the other guys. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Peter Dutoy, thank you. Peter is assistant editor at News24. A wrap of the most uh, significant issues of the year from a political perspective and the mess that is to come in 2024. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy, but certainly it's going to. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. We're going to be looking at the year's best adverts. It's only Christmas's best adverts. Um, and I think, I don't know if we're that good, really, in doing Christmas adverts. I've seen one that I've absolutely loved, and I hope that Luca Gallarelli agrees with me. Luca is the group chief executive at TBWA. And um, I was chatting to a friend of mine in the advertising industry the other day, Luca, and I said, who should I get to review the most objective eye possible? South Africa's Christmas adverts or the world's Christmas adverts. And your name came up immediately. It was just like that. Absolutely immediately, Luca. Um, so you've been handed the, the, the hospital pass of festive advertising. Is it as big a thing here as it is certainly in the UK, I'm sure many parts of Europe and in the United States, where companies sort of position their brands into the hearts and minds of consumers with the quality and the depth of their, their Christmas advertising? Um, Bruce, thank you, and thanks for the hospital pass um, on the 21st of December. It's good to be here discussing Christmas ads. And I must admit, I, you know, I hadn't watched a lot of them um, before before preparing for this interview, to be completely honest, and it really got me into the Christmas spirit. So it was a lovely transition from um, from work life into, into holiday life. And I think, you know... We do what the, we the can UK, to help. We do what we oh, can to help, Oh, thank you, Luca. Bruce. Thank you know, we, we, thank we're, we're warm and fuzzy you. that way. <laughs> Listen, I mean, you know, the UK has a long tradition of producing amazing Christmas ads. And in Europe, too, it's almost like, you know, the Super Bowl season in, in the US when it comes to advertising in particular. And I think, you know, from time to time in South Africa, we've had um, certain, certain Novembers and Decembers where Christmas advertising has has felt like it's becoming a little bit of a thing. But I think that, you know, it's never really taken, taken root in South Africa. We, we tend to have far more um, retail messaging, summer messaging. Um, the iconography around Christmas in South Africa and advertising is a little less pre- pre- prevalent than it is um, certainly in Europe. But, but I must admit, I, I did get the warm and fuzzies when I watched a couple of these commercials. Okay, so I mean, we we don't really have that strong festive season ad culture, and the sort of advertising we tend to get at this time of the year is about deals. It's about product pushes, isn't it? It's about bargains that you can get, or um, you can get a turducken here, or you can get a, a better price on wine there, or whatever the case might be. It, it's and summer holidays, stuff. right? Yeah, and summer holidays because obviously Christmas yeah. coincides with our big summer holiday. Where in Europe, obviously, summer holidays are, are July, August. Ours, ours tends to coincide with the festive season. So you tend to see this conflation of messages over that time. 
Okay, so we've got, uh, we've got. Uh, there's one particular Christmas ad which I see on your list is included, and we're saving it for last because it is my okay. absolute favourite of all of the ads that I've seen. Why don't we go to the home of the traditional Christmas advert? And people always talk about John Lewis, and I see John Lewis is on your list, but the UK's yeah. uh, Tesco, which is a bit like pick and pay, and um, they seem to have been making waves this year. Look, I, I must admit, I, I'm not sure which is your favorite, but the Tesco one was probably my favorite. Um, just in terms of, you know, and, and maybe it's because I'm a, I'm a dad of a 10-year-old and, you know, the, the, the themes and the iconography that, that are prevalent in that piece of work are just, are so sort of dominant and really, really speak to me. But, you know, and they've come out with a piece of work which has become more Christmas and it deals with, family themes, um, relationships between, you know, teenage children and, and, um, and, and obviously adults' parents in a way that's not as heavy-handed as one would imagine. It's, it's incredibly light. Um, it is beautifully produced, wonderfully cast. The acting is, is absolutely fantastic. And I think that the tone is just so, you know, thoroughly Christmassy. Um, I found myself going back to it and watching it over and over and over. And, and I must admit to feeling um, pretty moved the first and second time I watched that piece of work. Uh, and again, it depends, I suppose, on the way you're brought up and how you see Christmas. Do you see Christmas as ho, ho, ho in winter and, I don't know, fairy lights? Or yeah. is it a bit more sort yeah. of um, aloe branches, maybe a, a branch ripped off a, off a non-indigenous pine tree stuck in the corner of the yes. lounge? Uh, yes. Whereas in the Northern Hemisphere, it gets dark and dank and miserable at this time of the year and people tend to need a bit more of an, a, a lift. And I suppose that's where the, the Santa Claus legend comes from. It's where the elves uh, legends come from it's from that space of like we need to cheer ourselves up in the darkest days of winter yeah i think so and i think you know the majority of the themes that are coming through in a lot of the work this year is is really around uh, human connection and families reconnecting and i think you know regardless of of where one sits on the religious spectrum um, and, and whatever relationship one has to one has to Christmas, you know, people always recognise that it is that it is a time of year where people come together, where I suppose the stresses and pressures of real life are kind of are shed for a reconnecting with family and friends, and I suppose to some extent reconnecting with a former version of one's slightly more innocent self. And I think you know that's what that's what you know for me was very was very dominant in the Tesco piece of work. Um, and was and was was prevalent in all the pieces of work that certainly resonated with me this year. And, and John Lewis, of course, are are the classics, but they tend to use theirs as a massive, as you say, it's a showcase advert. It's the year that sort of yeah. it's the advert that defines them in the public sphere. They they judged more than yeah. anybody else because they've set the bar yeah. really high, and they've they're always there or thereabouts in terms of the the annual favourites. Look, they are, and and John Lewis recently, earlier earlier this year, ended their I think twelve year relationship with their agency partner, who, you know, they collaborated with in producing many of those iconic pieces of work that kind of brought a smile to many of our faces around this time of year. So, you know, many in the advertising industry, certainly in the UK, were watching eagerly to see what John Lewis would come out with this year, and and you know, I, it's it's a departure from their from their traditional. Um, tone of work, and and I'm to be honest. I think a welcome departure. You know, you know, the temptation is always to to reflect on what's made you famous, on trying to reproduce the best pieces of work that have come before. And it's always very scary for a big brand like John Lewis, particularly on the inside of a new relationship with an agency partner, to to chart a brave new course. And I think that they did it this year with a a piece of work that uh, that I thought was was you know utterly and thoroughly charming and of all of them kind of had me reminisce of um, the little shop of horrors. If you remember that from the, from the 1980s and, and really brought a smile Let to my face. Me see more. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, then Apple, 
um, which this year had the cringiest uh, so, uh, sort of CSI message, which I loved actually. The where um, at the at the annual general meeting of the executive committee of Apple is sitting around a big table, and Mother Nature comes in and she demands to know what they're doing for the environment. They come up with some some tangible goals, and so they've kind of been pushing the boundaries a little bit in terms of their comfort zones and the way in which they communicate with their markets. Have they been successful in creating? I don't know if it's not a Christmas advert. I think they call it their their holiday film. Is it like a a twelve part epic? What is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's about three and a half minutes um, of ad, so it's a big it's a big piece of work, um, and it's a wonderfully produced piece of work. It's almost you know for me, it's almost a Christmas ad inside a Christmas ad. As you say, it's more it's more um, holiday season um, specific as as you would imagine. In the US, they're kind of they're they're shifting to something that's a little bit more um, generic. Um, but I think as a as a piece of work, um, it's 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 a very compelling watch. And and the one thing that I, I I personally have always appreciated and loved about the Apple work is that they always place the product front and center. You know, there can simply never be an Apple piece of work, whether it's during Christmas time or any other time, that doesn't have the role of the product and of the brand incredibly clearly defined. And I think, again, you know, going back to that theme of human connections, um, we see, you know, two work colleagues who are a little bit estranged in the workplace um, who are, are reconnected through the art that one, that one is able to, to produce the phone when one, you know, discovers, I suppose, uh, a little bit of humanity and, and what is possibly sitting at the heart of the, of the rift in their relationship. So, you know, I thought it's a three-and-a-half-minute watch. It's like a mini-film but it is, it's a combination of real-life footage and stop-frame animation. And as a piece of production, it was the one that kind of had me sit up and take notice of the most out of, out of all that I had to watch of. Yeah, production, production, schmuckshit. I mean, we like that very much. It's good, but it cannot beat. And uh, and and do please play this. And uh, no, it's uh, it's important that you visualize two little kids waking up on what you immediately assume is Christmas morning, and they're excited, and they run downstairs, and they come across a guy climbing up a ladder, or is he climbing down a ladder? He's on a ladder. He's wearing boots and red pants. He's got a big white beard, and it's just fantastic. It's a classic Christmas advert. Just have a listen to this. Do. you fall asleep, the quicker you'll be here. He's here! He's here! He's here! It's really him! How quick! You're here. Uh, I am? <laughs> okay, and then I'll do thank you very much indeed. Two little boys waking up. You assume it's on Christmas morning. They run downstairs, and there's a lovely twist in this one, Luke. And this is what I love about it, because it is the quintessential yeah. South African Christmas advert. It's a wonderful play on all the stereotypes, and it's got that delicious element of surprise at the end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, produced by the retroviral team, who kind of continue to surprise us with, with wonderful work, and they've kind of done that with the traditional Christmas ad, too, which... which all of the traditional icons and all of the traditional feel of a Christmas ad, but with a uniquely South African, South African to Australia positioning electricity and power as the gift that for Christmas this year. So I thought a wonderful piece of work and, and maybe the start of a new tradition of Christmas advertising in South Africa. I, I certainly hope so. Thank you, Luca Gallarelli, the Group Chief Executive of TBWA. It is a beautiful little uh, piece of work. It really is. Um, and it goes down this year as my absolute favorite because, of course, we have a bias. Um, yes, the adverts for John Lewis are pretty, and the Apple advert has got wonderful production values. And the UK um, Tesco advert is, is wonderful and family values and stuff. But for surprise and for South Africanness and for just taking us down a joyful route of anticipating one particular outcome and getting something completely different to the team at Retroviral, our favorite Christmas ad on The Money Show. Well, I guess that's mine. I haven't. 
taken a vote on it or anything, but it's my favorite advert of the year, um, is the advert which surprises uh, for a solar company. Um, and the old guy with the white beard and the boots is not Father Christmas, but he's the guy installing the solar panels. And the two little boys are so excited because load shedding for them becomes a thing of the past. It is the quintessential The Money Show. Personal Finance. The name. What is the first name of the personal finance writer at the Financial Mail? I'm feeling quite embarrassed and a little bit uh, frustrated this evening. Uh, S on uh, Twitter this evening and is uh, E. Makumukumbo on Twitter, um, who is a contributor to the Financial Mail. And I, I just saw this most wonderful tweet this evening about what she is doing in terms of her home loan. Uh, I'm on leave. I've got time on my hands. So it's time to renegotiate the interest rate on my home loan. I'm currently on prime, which is 11.75% minus 0.35. So my rate is 11.4. After my call yesterday, so phone the bank yesterday, it's been reduced to prime minus 0.7. So going down from 11.75 down to 11.05. Now, you may not think that that is significant, but over the 20-year term of a bond, that decline of 0.7 is massive. But S says, I've pushed back. Let's see what happens. Being a bit bossy and a bit pushy when it comes to trying to renegotiate your home loan. Uh, S used to work in the banking sector, so understands um, that the you can push back on these things. And there's been an interesting bit of sort of feedback on her Twitter feed this evening. Uh, Soul Fairy 3 says, my bond is prime minus 1.3. And depending on when you did get your bond and depending on, you know, your purchasing power at the time and the amount of deposit that you put down on the, on the, on the property that you bought, you would have had an opportunity to negotiate quite aggressively on your bond. And it's worthwhile doing. And it should be something that is on your bucket list in 2024. What is on your personal finance bucket list in 2024? I wonder. Uh, and so... And as uh, Gugu Sidaki this evening, Gugu uh, has said that she will share a, p- a, p- a personal p- a bucket list with us tonight because she wants you to be thinking about how you're going to be managing your personal finances better into 2024. It's a really important thing to do. So, Gugu, talk to me about bucket lists. I quite like S's bucket list, um, sort of taking the time out. It's nice mm. and quiet. Call centers are likely to be less busy. And S has got a little bit bossy with the call center and gone, I think I need to pay you less. So help me pay you less. And the bankers agreed. And she's gone, no, that's not good enough. Try harder. I love it. <laughs> I love S and I love, I follow her on Twitter as well. So I love her content. And I agree with her 100%. I think we tend to be so apologetic about, you know, so many things, including our personal finances and the services and, and products that we get from service providers. And, and we do need to push back. We do need to stand our ground a little bit more and look at the results. I mean, you've also managed to renegotiate your your home loan rate, which is which is wonderful. Um, absolutely. So talk to me about bucket lists and why they're important when it comes to personal finance. Mm. So in, in our business, it's it's actually a big part of what we do. We try to encourage clients to, yes, set goals and to do all the serious stuff. But I think it's also important to have a bucket list of things that are less serious, more experiential, you know, um, and that cover a, a number of different activities, adventures, personal accomplishments, and obviously personal finances. And I think it's just one of those things. I mean, I said this to a couple that I was assisting a few days ago and I said, you know, life is very serious. Um, you spend your days working towards, you know, making sure that your family and, and loved ones get what they need. Um, and then so often we forget to do the less serious stuff, um, the stuff that we that that brings a smile to our face and that keeps us motivated. And that's what exactly what a bucket list does. Um, it's, it's, it's yes, it's, it's some of the serious stuff, but also encompasses a lot of the less serious stuff. And I think going into 2024, um, you know, all of us, many people tend to set um, New Year's resolutions and, and those tend to trip us up because, you know, you set it at the beginning of there's quite a lot of anxiety and seriousness that's associated with them. And then halfway through the year, we've forgotten what they've, what we've set and what they are. And then by the end of the year, the, those things are out of the window. Whereas with the bucket list, it's more of a general idea of what we're trying to do with our lives. And in this particular case with our money. And, and that's what I'd like for us to chat about today. It's so important, though, to have goals. And there are short, they're medium, they're long-term goals. The long-term goal is pay off the mortgage. The medium-term goal may be to get out of mm. debt. The short-term goal 
should be, I suppose, something like, you know, invest as much as you can and invest well and review your investments. Mm. But also make sure that, you know, when's the next break after Christmas? Generally, there's a long weekend around the 21st of March. You can squeeze something in there or you mm-hmm. can wait till around mm-hmm. Easter. Um, sort of plan for mm-hmm. something fun around that time or just plan to splash out on Valentine's Day or whatever the case might be. But set a set yeah. a goal that you put a little bit of money aside for that says, actually, I live. I don't live to work. I work to live and, and, mm, and have a little exactly bit of fun that. on that front. Yes, a bit of a fun fund. I mean, I you know I know somebody who buys a different color lipstick every time she hits a, a certain milestone with her with her cash flow management, and it, it may seem insignificant, but you have no idea how how much of a difference a different lippy color would make. And, and yeah, I mean, and they can be a little bit more bigger than that. It could be. <laughs> It it could be that little trip away over the weekend. I mean, you can have fun with it. And that's the point of, of a bucket list is that it's not meant to be terribly serious. Um, but yeah, just to have a bit of fun. And it's your end. We can we can afford to do that. Google and I would like to hear what is on your financial bucket list. It doesn't even have to be a list. It could just be what's the one thing you want to achieve next year? It can be a serious thing. It can be a, mm-hmm. a, a light thing. It can be a fun thing. It can be a funny thing. Um, you know, you might just want to go to the zoo or whatever the case is. Maybe help the monkeys <laughs> escape. Whatever it might be. Uh, we would like to hear your bucket <laughs> list this evening. I'm talking to Gugu Sadaki uh, from WealthCreed. She likes that idea, actually. Sorry, Joburg Zoo. Um, now, Gugu, tell us what is on your bucket list this year because you did promise to share yours. Just give us some ideas as to the sort of things that you are putting on, on Gugu's bucket list. Yeah, so I've had one since I was 18, right? I mean, I was watching the Oprah oh. Winfrey show um, as an 18-year-old, and she had this very interesting gentleman on who introduced the idea to to all of her, her viewers. And that's when I said, man, it's actually dated here, 25th of July, um, 20, 2001. So I was a little bit older than 18. Um, and yeah, I've, I've got quite a few things. I mean, one of them here, some of them you'd, you'd, you'd laugh at, but I wanted to take a pottery. That's still on the list. I still haven't yeah. done that. Um, I wanted to write a cookbook. Book. <laughs> I still haven't done that. Um, and then the other one, this this idea I actually got from a friend of mine. Um, I didn't know this existed, but I wanted to ride elephants um on, on the beach in Gabon. Apparently that's a thing. Um it sounded oh. exciting at the time. So I, I wrote I wrote that, yeah, apparently so. So I, I wrote that down. And then there's a few that I have that I have ticked off, um, which I think are, are quite exciting. Um I what did I tick off here? I wanted to take up cooking classes, which I did. Um, I wanted to start a jazz music collection. That was, I mean, I keep finessing this. I keep adding to my list. And this was in 2004. So I took that off. I started doing that. And my other one here is I wanted to get married to a man with a sense of humor and heart. And that we did that in 2013. So like I said, some of them are are fun, are fun and light. (laughs) And, and some are, are, are a little bit more serious. But the other point is to really enjoy putting pen to paper with this exercise and then just enjoy life while experiencing all of these things. And that becomes a goal, doesn't it? I mean, a, a goal verbalized or a goal written down. If you if you tell mm. your friends about your goals, mm. that kind of commits you to doing mm. stuff. And if you've got good friends, they'll keep a check on you and saying, have you done that thing? Um, if you write them down, you keep yourself in check because you keep having to remind yourself mm. of the goals that you set. And maybe your, your priorities change over time. Maybe you never will write that cookbook. Maybe you never will do the pottery class. Mm. Maybe because either you've outgrown the idea or um, mm. you just have got new priorities. But at least it keeps a check and a balance mm. as to where you are at a particular point in time. That's true. And if you read a lot of the research around writing down your goals or your bucket list, um, the research says that about you, you're about 42% more likely to achieve those goals that you write down than not. Right. So already just by putting pen to paper, you are improving your chances greatly by doing so because it improves clarity, um, accountability and your memory. Because we forget, I mean, a list of 100 is a lot to remember and you're never going to remember all of them if you don't write them down. You've got your list that goes back to 2001. Where do you keep this list? I mean, the fact that you've got this list and you can call upon it at the moment is very impressive, by the way, um, mm. because I, I don't remember where I put my socks. How do you keep track of it? So I've always been 
in love with journals um, and and little book booklets. So I've kept one. Uh, I've kept this book actually from from when I was a teenager, and I never used it up. I I, I started writing, so the 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 list is is in the first couple of pages, and I never really filled up the book. And the the point of this book was to to fill it up with all my the things that I wanted to achieve in life. And I've had it I, miraculously with all the moving and the and life changing. I've kept it. It's actually quite, and, and it's quite embarrassing. If, if I were to show you the cover of this little booklet, the typical teenage stuff, and which I'm not going to share, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's exactly the same book I've had since I was around 18. Now, and that's uh, again, it, it, a lot of that stuff. If you read, you know, uh, I found my wife's diary from when she was traveling in Russia at the time of Boris Yeltsin's takeover <laughs> from Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm. It was an interesting book, but wow. um, she's different, wow. thankfully different from when she was 18. Um, mm. You know, because mm. the, the naivety of some of the expressions, and I, I showed it to yes. her, what I found, was like, take that away! And I think it's been burned. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes, sometimes those thoughts are better dis, uh, disposed of. Um, when we look at the, the mm. writing them down and, and starting with the broad categories, and then Getting uh, everything works better when you're in a team, Um, you know, whether you're one of the Beatles Mm. or whether you are Steve Mm. Jobs and Steve Wozniak sitting in a garage, whether you are Jeff Bezos Mm. and the guys who started Amazon in the garage with him, whether you are wanting (laughs) to run a marathon or ride a bicycle race, having a a training partner or a buddy or a support system Mm. makes it a, a problem shared as a problem halved, I think is the old saying. Having mm. a, a network mm. of like-minded people actually can make this process a lot more participative, a lot more fun, and that issue of accountability to yourself more than anyone else, but having other people check in on you is helpful, I think. Very. Um, I mean, I'll share my experience with one of those things. I, I wanted to improve my my fitness levels a few years ago, m- many, uh, I think it's over a decade ago. <laughs> Um, and a friend of mine, used, a friend used to live just down the road from where I was. And she and I decided that at the crack of dawn, which just wasn't very clever, but at around half past four, five o'clock, she and I would go jogging around the block and we'd leave our phones. So I, I knew that I couldn't slack and not get up and meet her because she, I know that she's left her phone and she's waiting for me on the street corner at, at, at half past four, five o'clock or whatever the time we had set for ourselves. So if, if she was not there meeting me at that time, I probably wouldn't have gotten up at that ungodly hour and, and jogged around the block. So absolutely. And again, a lot of research does support this. I mean, I think even Warren Buffett, you know, talking about, you know, the biggest um, financial decision that he's made was the, the person that he married, his wife, because that has greatly improved his yeah. chances of success. And he cites it constantly. So yes, I agree with you 100%. Sharing, having an accountability partner and sharing your goals and aspirations with them and then having Having them, you know, keep feeding back to you all of these things that you're wanting to achieve is, is an incredible, incredible motivator. And it keeps you consistent and it keeps you on track. About 10 years ago, I did an exercise and I built a whole bunch of talks and content around founders, South African founders of, of great businesses. Um, and there are a couple of commonalities between them. And the one thing that struck me by the time I got to interview number three, and then I started asking this question in each one of the interviews that I did with these people, um, they all happen to be men, um, because that's the nature of the founders of the, the big corporations that we have today. And I just said to them, there's mm-hmm. one thing that under pins all of you and they were quite curious about it what is it uh, our enthusiasm our energy our, our passion our, our brilliance our training our skills are we all accountants said, no actually you've all been married to one person all your lives um and you you, mm-hmm. you made a good choice in in life partner um and suddenly this this for some of them they went hey obviously i mean that's i know that mm-hmm. and some of them went yeah mm-hmm. actually i hadn't thought of it that way and mm. you know, it's just that that yeah. thing of like when when you your when your intimate support structure is is solid and strong. I think you can achieve almost anything. Mm. Agreed. I mean, I, I wrote an article recently about it. Um, we watched the Rugby World Cup um, a few weeks ago. How long has it been? Uh, weeks, months? I can't can't even remember. But I, I, an interesting know, a while. Um, debate. <laughs> End of October. <laughs> an interesting a month yes. and a half. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes, then, then. <laughs> An interesting debate arose on social media around, uh, you know, how every single one, well, almost every single one of the rugby players had their significant others and, and their children present and pictures were taken and very, they seemed to, very, to, to enjoy the support of their loved ones quite publicly, um, during the World Cup. And, and, and when you really read a lot of the research around that, it, it absolutely confirms how having exactly what you said, an intimate support structure that is solid, how that improves the chances of your success with everything that you do. Um, there are statistics. I mean, very, very fascinating. I actually went down that rabbit hole and it is fascinating what, what that does for an individual. I mean, one of the statistics I, I read, I can't remember what it was, but they said that people who who have a, a great support structure also tend to take a little bit more risks, which obviously um, when it comes to things like investments, for example, does tend to improve your chances of, of success or making or, or getting a bigger paycheck at the end of the day. So it's, it's really, really, and there's certain companies, by the way, who will only hire married individuals because they know that you're more stable. What? The, the chances of you <laughs> jumping around, look, yes, they are, the chances of you looking for another job um, erratically are slimmer. You know, they, they're so, they're, they're, as, as I said, I went down that rabbit hole and, and the, the, the research is fascinating. But yeah, I do agree with you. Uh, yeah, and it, uh, and I'm glad that it's brought out. It's borne out. It was something I noticed and I'm, I'm glad that academic mm. research supports it. So therefore, um, it's a fact. <laughs> now, um, when, when, when mm. you then share those goals and aspirations with either your most intimate partner or your friend group or whatever the case is, and that's why investment clubs are so good. I mean, I've, I've been asked to speak to a number of investment mm. clubs over the years and I've just been mm. so massively inspired. They, they end up drinking more wine mm. and it's a bit like a book club, I suppose. <laughs> you know, investments happen in the first seven. 17 minutes and then uh, the, the party splits up and everybody has a good time. But there's an element of accountability there mm. where it comes to um, mm. a, a group of friends getting together, committing money into a pot where mm. they trust each other. It's well managed. It's well accounted for. Mm. And they actually create a system whereby they invest money together. And that becomes a really mm. interesting personal finance bucket list for, for, for some people. Yeah. And, and and the effects of saving together um, are huge. I mean, I know so many people. It's actually quite shocking if you think about it. But I know so many people who, even if they don't have that money, right, if, if, if the budget does not allow for that month, they are happy to go borrow and beg for that money to be to be released to them so that they can contribute towards their group savings. And, and some people are prepared to forego certain things in their households on particular months just simply because they, they, they want to make, they can't stand to face their, they, they stock fell um, um, friends and, and, and whatever's and, and to let them know that they don't have that money. So yeah, it, it has an incredible, incredible impact on 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 your um, consistency and 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 whether you keep up with those with those payments or not. It's it's quite something. And so, so many people have built houses, yeah. taken children to school. Yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> And it is, yeah, that, that that idea of group activity. And it's not everybody's cup of tea. People like to, you know, some people are more private, some people mm -hmm. are more secretive, some people are more independent. But mm -hmm. I think for the vast majority of us, we work better in teams. We really do. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the concept mm -hmm. of ease, and I mean, the fact that you've managed to keep track of your earliest goals from 2001, the pot pottery in the cookbook and the riding the elephant on the beach in Gabon, uh, very specific, that one, by the way, um, is, <laughs> is, 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 that, is part of the success excess of it, of course, because you, you constantly are holding yourself accountable and constantly revisiting those goals and constantly reminding yourself of why it is that you're not going out um, or going on the golf trip or going on the girls trip to Paris for the weekend just because it's on a whim and it seems like a fun idea. You're actually, you've got goals mm -hmm. here that you're trying to achieve and it reminds you of what's really important to you. Mm. And and again, research supports this that you are likely to to stick to, so you're likely to do something, and you're likely to stick to it, um, as long as the, the the barriers to to doing that are removed. Um, which is why automation is such a huge thing when it comes to investing. If you don't have to think about it, there's no buttons that you have to press. There's no decisions that you have to be made that that you have to make. Um, you you are far likely. Um, uh, inclined to to invest towards a, a product on a more consistent basis in in that way, which is why we always recommend that don't think about it. Just just get a debit order in place, and and get that money zapped from your from your salary on a particular day, and then then it's just taken away from your hands, and then it goes into the investment and it grows as it's supposed to. But the more you have to do something in order to achieve something, the the, the harder it is for you to achieve it. So yeah, set easier goals, especially in the beginning. Set make them light, make them easier. Create as 
little barriers or friction as possible towards achieving those goals. And you'll see, you build a momentum of, after some time and it becomes a lot easier to achieve the next and the next and the next. So pick the easy ones, stick to them and then move on to the next and, and you'll you'll be ticking them off um, in, in no time, which is a great motivator as well. So the more ticks you're seeing in your bucket list, the more inclined you are to continue and the more motivated you are. And add to your bucket list. Keep on adding to your bucket list. Gugu, I thoroughly yes. enjoyed that. Thank you so much for opening my eyes. I will go and start a bucket list. I think it's a very good idea. Financial bucket list for 2024. I hope you are inspired too by Director and Wealth Manager at Wealth Creed, Gugu Sidaki, this evening, creating the bucket list, keeping it available, sharing it with friends and family. Creating shared experiences so that you hold each other accountable and that you force yourself to do the things that can sometimes be a bit difficult. I think.